announcements. Um, we're preaching straight through the book of Mark. We started at the book of Mark chapter 1, and we are burning straight through to Mark chapter 16. Uh, before we jump into the scripture, Claude Bennett, would you mind to come and pray for us? Claude and, and his wife Debbie are the head of our prayer team, uh, and we just appreciate all the work they do here. So, Claude, if you wouldn't mind to pray for us. Praise God. Let's just lift our hearts to the Lord. Father, we thank you so much this morning for your presence, your goodness, your mercy, your kindness towards us. You are awesome. We pray, God, that our hearts would be prepared to receive your word, cause it to be fruitful in our lives. Bless the pastor. Bless what you've given him to share. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. All right, so... We are, uh, before we get into this, so we're talking the, about, basically we're talking about failure today. Um, we're going to talk through a passage where uh, Peter, the leader of the disciples, massively fails, massively fails. Um, and so I, I found a few instances of uh, what I would call failed inventions on, uh, online this week. I found a few of them. I found a few of them to be humorous, so I thought I'd share them with you before um, we read the scripture. Uh, the first one is called a steering wheel desk. Um, this is just a bad idea in general. Um, if you have a desk on your steering wheel, I, uh, I hope you're not driving near me. So um, the next one was a sweetheart sweatshirt. This is another idea that's just, I would call it a fail. Uh, not a good idea. Um, if you don't want to be that close to your sweetheart, you can get a TV hat where... Um, you can block your sweetheart out completely and watch TV. These are real, by the way. Um, this is one that I, I just hope I, I, I never use. It's a visor wig. <laughs> Some of you are going, hey, that's, that's a good idea. Um, the next one I actually like, slipper mops. Um, that seems like a good idea, actually. Yeah, you have one of those? Um, this is one my wife actually likes, pizza cutter slash fork. Uh, if that was on TV late at night and I was asleep and she was awake, she would order that. I'm not joking. Um, this is one that I really like. It's called the mono wheel. Uh, that just never quite took off, the mono wheel. But if it's not dangerous enough for you, there's a monocycle that you can use. Um, so anyway, these are bad ideas. These are what I would call failures. Um, and we laugh at failure because we relate so intimately to it, right? I mean, all of us have failed in our life many, many times. Um, and so we, when we see failure, it, it, it immediately resonates with us because we get it, right? We, we've done it. Um, I'm going to talk today about not just failure, but about redemption. Uh, this sermon is titled The Wheel of Redemption. Part of Failure. If you if you if you don't stop at failure, you ultimately come through into redemption. And Peter's life, the Apostle Peter, his life is such a beautiful template. It is such a beautiful example for us of someone who massively failed, but was ultimately restored and redeemed and pursued his mission despite his failure. And in fact, arguably became better as a result of his failure. Um, so let's jump into Mark chapter 14. Uh, we're doing verses 66 through 72. 
Um, now, before we read this, right before this happened, right before this scripture, you'll remember Jesus was taken up to, the, uh, to Caiaphas' house. This is the Passion Week. This is the end of Jesus' life. Jesus is hours away from his death. He's taken up to Caiaphas' house. Caiaphas was the high priest that was established by Roman imperial rule. Uh, Caiaphas did not want Jesus to, uh, to stir problems up because he didn't want the Romans to come in and crush this rebellion and, and fire him from his job. Okay? Caiaphas was put into place by the Romans. So uh, this is during the trial, sort of the mock trial or the kangaroo court that was going on upstairs at Caiaphas' house. Remember, if you remember last week, Peter sort of crept along in the shadows behind Jesus as Jesus was being taken to this trial in front of the Sanhedrin. So Peter now is downstairs in the courtyard of Caiaphas' house. That's where this takes place. Jesus is being tried upstairs. Caiaphas is downstairs in the courtyard outside around a fire. Okay, verse 66 says, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest, one of Caiaphas' servant girls, came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. She recognized him. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. Have you ever, have you ever heard someone protest too much? He, I like how he doubles it up here. I don't know what you're talking about. In fact, I don't even understand what you're saying. It's like the kid that says, you know, Jameson, did you eat that cookie? Cookie? I don't, I don't even know what a cookie is. You know, it's like, um, so Peter is, is protesting too much here. Uh, and Peter went into the gateway, so he slipped a little bit away from the fire, went into the gateway where it was dark, and the rooster crowed. Remember, Jesus just the night before, or just actually the same night, earlier that night, said to Peter, you will deny me three times before the cock crows twice. And Peter emphatically said, I will never deny you. If everybody else denies you, I won't deny you. And the rooster crowed. What I like about this uh, moment here is that this could have been the alarm bell for Peter. This could have been the, oh yeah, the rooster. I remember I'm not going to do this. I'm not going down this path. But when we're, when we're in that mode of failure, when we're walking down the pathway of sin and destruction, sometimes those alarm bells, sometimes those flashing lights, we don't see them, right? So this, the, the, and the rooster crowed, uh, and 69 says, verse 69 says, and the servant girl saw him, so she's pursuing him, and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. So she's calling him out in front of other people now. So the pressure is mounting. But again, Peter denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders, so now they're standing around the fire going, you know, he does look, he does look familiar. They say to him, certainly, are, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. So now they are, everybody is starting to go late. Hey, man, we know who you are. And Peter doubles down, right? He doesn't, he doesn't say, you know what, you're right. I am a follower of Christ. And you know what? I'm proud of it. I've been following him three years. He's my master. He's my rabbi. He's my leader. He's my Lord. And you know what? Come hell or high water, he's my man, and I'm going to stick with him. No. He doubles down and says, the verse says, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear. 
I do not know this man of whom you speak. The Greek word in the curse there is the word anathematize. Um, it has an object. Okay, the, the, it's, a, it's a verb that requires an object. And in this uh, translation, it says he began to invoke a curse on himself. In other words, he began to say, um, you know, I'm cursed if I'm lying to you. Um, some theologians think that the curse was reflexive of something else, so that either he was cursing the people around him uh, or uh, one pastor uh, and, and others, uh, Tim Keller, thinks that he was actually cursing Jesus. He was the, 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 the uh, pronoun, the object of the curse was Jesus because he wanted to prove that, in fact, he wasn't a follower of him. And what better way to prove that than to curse him and to say, I don't know that curse person, right? Um, it's not clear, but one way or another, he's doubling down. He's cursing. He's swearing. He's saying, I don't know the guy. And immediately, verse uh, 72, immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered, remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. This is that, that moment. Have you ever had that moment where either you're, you're, you're doing something wrong and then, then suddenly you have that stark realization of panic. I can't believe it. It's usually not when you're doing it. It's usually after you, you do it. And you just have that moment of panic and realization. I can't believe I did that. Um, sometimes it, sometimes uh, for me, I'll have a dream. Sometimes I'll dream that I did something or that something happened. And you wake up and you go, did that really happen? You go, oh, thank God that didn't happen. Peter has this stark memory This suddenly he goes, oh, Jesus said this is what would happen. And it did happen. I've denied him three times. And, and Peter broke down and wept. Um, what I love about Peter, as, as he's described in the book of Mark, is that his life provides a template for us of this cycle or this wheel of redemption. Um, it's a wheel of redemption that has a pattern, and it's sort of a spiritual pattern that we see all throughout life. We see it in other people. We can see it in ourselves, and I want to just go through sort of the rungs on this wheel, okay, the spokes on this wheel, on this cycle, on this wheel of redemption. Um, and I'm going to do this sermon in two parts. Um, one is sort of descriptive. Okay, the first part, I'm just going to describe what this cycle is, this wheel of redemption. And the second is prescriptive. What do we do about it? What do we do when we find ourselves on the wheel? Okay, um, so this wheel begins with this. Every great enterprise, every great adventure, every great mission begins with an initial decision. It begins with a decision. The word decision comes from the, the root desidare, which means to cut off. And I love that. Every time you make a decision, you are cutting off alternative options. If you decide I'm going left, you have cut off the option of going right. Okay? If you decide you're going to pursue this relationship, then you have cut off the pursuit of other relationships. All right? Um, and we all know that there's this moment in our life where we decide to pursue a particular path. During the Olympics, Bob Costas was asking, he would always ask the Olympians, you know, he'd sit in that little chair, and, then, and one of the questions he always asked is, when did you decide to become a, you know, he asked uh, Phelps, when did you decide to become a swimmer? He asked the, uh, 
the gymnasts. When did you decide to become a gymnast? And they all had a moment where they said, I decided when, and then they gave their story. Um, there's a great story about a young uh, 12-year-old boy down in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, whose name was Cassius Clay. And uh, some of you know I'm kind of a boxing fan. Um, uh, my wife knows. But um, so Cassius Clay, 12 years old, he's down at this auditorium, the Columbia Auditorium down in um, Louisville, Kentucky. He's with his friend. He rides there on a brand-new red and white Schwinn bicycle, $60, brand-new mint Schwinn bicycle, okay? He gets there. He eats the popcorn. He goes to the event. He and his buddy get ready to leave, and his bike is gone. His bike's gone. And 12-year-old Cassius Clay is just bursts into tears. He is angry and mad, and uh, they direct him downstairs. They say, there's a police officer downstairs. You can tell him what, you know, what the problem is. So he goes downstairs. He meets a police officer. The police officer's name is Joe Martin. Joe Martin is not only a police officer, but he's also a boxing trainer. He's a boxing coach and a boxing manager. And little Cassius Clay comes down, and he says, I want a statewide search for my bicycle, and I want to beat this guy up when I find out who stole my bike. And Joe Martin says, well, do you know how to fight? And he says, no. And he says, well, maybe you ought to learn how to fight. Joe Martin becomes Cassius Clay's trainer for the next six years. Cassius Clay goes on to become Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer of all time, if you ask me, pound for pound. Uh, but, uh, but it begins with this decision. He has this moment where he decides, this is what I'm going to be. Um, when we look at Peter's life, if you look at Mark chapter, if you remember, this is a long time ago for, for some of you. Mark chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Jesus, remember, was this is way, way back at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus was passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon, who we now know as Peter. He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, um, Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. These guys had a fishing business. They were commercial fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. This was the moment of decision for Peter. He decided, I'm going to follow this guy. He had met Jesus earlier. He had heard him preach. John the Baptist had recommended Jesus to his followers, and, and Peter and Andrew left their nets, and they said, we're going to follow him. He had no idea at that point that he was going to be embroiled in a spiritual and political and global revolution, but he did know that this guy, there's something special about this guy, I'm going to follow him. So we have this first step in this wheel of redemption, which is the initial decision to pursue the goal. That decision for Peter and for some of us, leads to initial success. So um, when he started, Peter started with Jesus, he initially experienced quite a bit of success. Um, have you ever noticed that when you start something, you, you, you tend to do a great job at it, like right when you start it? We have, uh, you know, at, at, at work, we have summer associates come in. And they're, they're coming in, and they're uh, sort of applying for the job, but they've kind of almost got the job, but... Um, and man, are they, boy, they are just buttoned down and ready to rock. You know, it's like if you say, hey, I need, I need you to review these 10,000 documents. It's mind-numbingly boring, and you'll probably want to poke yourself in the eye when you're done. They go, that sounds great. I'd be happy to do that, you know. People, when they start a job, you know, or like when you start started dating, you know, guys, when you started dating your significant other, you know, you were, you were 
well-dressed and you opened the door and you trimmed your nose hairs and you just <laughs> had a breath mint and you were just all right, you know. Um, and then over the years, sometimes we sort of let some of that stuff go. But um, you shouldn't. That's right. Um, in Mark chapter 3, Peter had this great initial success with Jesus. In Mark 3, Jesus renamed him from Simon to Peter. He called him, Petros means rock. He said, you're my rock, okay? Jesus is calling Peter the rock. In Mark 5, um, Jesus chooses Peter, James, and John to accompany him to raise Jairus' daughter. So he pulls Peter out from the group of 12 and says, I want you to come. I want you to see this special event. In Mark chapter 6, Peter and the others go out and they preach and they heal and they go through the land and they have a ton of success. Mark chapter 8, when Jesus says, who do you think I am? Says to his disciples, Peter is the one that identifies him as the Christ. He's the first one that says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. So Peter is on a roll. Mark chapter 9, Jesus chooses Peter to accompany him to the Mount of Transfiguration to see a special spiritual event that occurs. Peter is pulled out. Every time you see the the listing of the disciples in the scripture, Peter's name comes first. Every time. Every time there's an event in the book of Mark that is important and significant, Peter is right there. He's right there. He's right in the middle of it. He's privy to every event uh, that Jesus um, engages in in the book of Mark, and he's the closest. He seems to be the one that's always right on Jesus' right hand. So he has this incredible success as a, an apostle and a disciple of Christ. And here's where we go to the next spoke on the wheel. Sometimes this initial success leads to pride, self-overconfidence, right? We're doing great. We're doing fantastic. And suddenly we can't imagine screwing up. We can't imagine failing because we're just riding so high. Um, when I was a high schooler, when I was a t- uh, senior Pattonville High School was on the wrestling team, and uh, I was doing really, really well this year, this this particular year. Back in the, uh, I won't even tell you when it was. Yeah, <laughs> Dawn and I went to high school. She doesn't want me to tell you when we graduated, so we'll just leave that that date alone. Um, but it was, you know, it was four or five years ago, and so, um, and I was on the wrestling team, and I was doing really well. And I, at this particular year, I was undefeated, and I was seated first in the state for my weight class, and I just kind of thought, hey, I'm solid here. Nobody's going to mess with me, and, and, I ha- and I was at the Pattonville tournament, okay, so that means all of my friends, all the family, all the other football players and basketball players and all the other athletes were there, and I was uh, up against this guy, and, and I don't mean to say he was a scrub, but he was kind of a scrub. I mean, he was not a strong wrestler. He was, we used to call him fish, you know, if it, and so I was beating this guy Sorry, that's not nice. Uh, I, I was beating this guy 13 to 1. 13 to 1, it was the end of the third, it was the third period, and I just was taking him down at will, turning him over, no problem. He got one escape, that's where he got his one point. But 13 to 1, with 11 seconds left on the clock, in front of all the crowd at Pattonville, I'm kind of messing around with him, not trying so hard, just kind of riding out the clock, he gets a single leg. He pulls my ankle up. My leg goes in the air. I don't know what happened. I fell straight on my back. He landed on top of me, and with countdown from 11 seconds, we're at about 9 seconds, beep, I hear the whistle. He pinned me. He pinned me, and, 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 and I, lost. I took, I think, like third place that tournament because it was of the way the bracket was. 
And I remember, I remember seeing the picture of me on the metal stand, and it's like, I had cauliflower ears, so my ears like sticking out, and I got bandage on it. I'm really mad, and I'm just standing there fuming because I lost, you know, I lost to this guy who was not that good. Um, I used to have his name seared in my brain, and I've somehow I've lost it, so I guess I'm over it. Um, but the point is, is that when we think we cannot be defeated, when we think we cannot fail, when we think that we are riding high and we sort of become blinded by this hubris, by this overconfidence, by this arrogance, by this pride, that is precisely when we lose it, right? That is precise. Pride cometh before a fall every time, right? And that is the inevitable failure or the inevitable fall that accompanies um, uh, pride. L- let me back up just a minute, okay? Um, because the, the scripture for Peter was that um, uh, Peter, even though he, he, he tells Jesus that night, that same night, remember, he says, here's his hubris. He even points out his fellow disciples and he says, even if all of these guys fall away, I won't fall away. I just want you to know, I will, I'm not like them. I love you more than them. And that's in um, Mark chapter 14, verses 27 to 31. And in fact, Jesus says, you will fall away. And, and he, he says to Jesus, emphatically, even if I have to die, I won't fall away. All right? He swears. He swears himself in. Um, okay, so he's got this pride, this hubris. And of course, there comes the fall. When we hear these names, Bernie Madoff, John Edwards, Tiger Woods, Ted Haggard, Rod Blagojevich, these are public figures. The first thing that comes to our mind is this fall, this fall from grace, right? And I'm not going to beat up on these guys because we're exactly like them, except we're just not on the, in the paper. You know, we're not on TV. We all fail. We all fall. We all fail miserably. Um, Peter, in his moment to shine in Mark 14, 71 through 72, in his moment to shine, in his moment to step up and say who he is, he denies him. Not once, not twice, three times, emphatically, with curses and swears, denies Jesus. The next, the next rung on this wheel is the repentance. Um, this, is, this is the part where, it, this is the part that's hard to do. This is the part that's hard to do. And it's hard to get this part right. Because, we'll talk about it in a minute, but you can languish in your failure, and that's not repentance. Just going down the shame spiral and languishing in your failure, that's not repentance, okay? Repentance is acknowledging what you've done, confessing it, and then turning away from it, right? Acknowledging it, confessing it and turning away from it. In Mark 14, 72, uh, Peter, after the denial, just breaks down and wept. He broke down and wept. Um, This is a vital, and we're going to talk about it a little bit more in just a second, a vital component in this cycle. If you don't hit this component, you don't get to move on. This is, you get stuck right here. Um, And when you have repented, the final sort of step, the final um, spoke in the wheel is the renewed calling. Um, There's a great passage, and Mark doesn't record it, but uh, John does. There's a great, great scene after Jesus had died 
after he had resurrected and Peter and, and, and the, the other disciples were not certain of his resurrection. And, and Peter says, uh, he's around six of the other disciples, and they say, what are you going to do? And he says, I'm going to go fishing. And so seven of these guys, they go out and they go fishing. And they're fishing all night, and they're not catching fish. And it's a great scene, and sometime we'll talk through it. But there's a point where Jesus appears on the beach. He appears on the beach, and this heartbreaking moment where Peter just, he sees that it's Jesus, and he can't wait for the boat to get up to the shore. He jumps out, plunges in the water, and just starts running toward Jesus. And there's this amazing exchange in John 21. Jesus actually cooks breakfast for him uh, on the beach. They're there by a fire. It's dawn. Uh, and they've been out working all night, and Jesus is there, and he cooks dinner. He cooks breakfast for them. And it says that uh, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? I think why he says, do you love me more than these, is he's putting, putting it back into Peter's court a little bit, saying, remember when you said that you're better than all of these? You know, he's putting playing, playing that uh, up against Peter again. And, and he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. This time he doesn't boast. This time he doesn't say, yeah, I love you more than everyone else. He, he says, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, um, feed my lambs. And then Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Second time, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says, tend my sheep. Next slide. And then he said to him the third time, what is Jesus doing? Jesus is restoring this triplicate denial. He is saying, the other night when you were asked, if you knew me, you denied me three times. I'm restoring all three of those denials. Do you love me? Third time. Jesus, uh, uh, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? So Peter's saying, oh, it, it kills me that you have to keep asking me this because you don't know if I love you. And, 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 um, and he says to him, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, you know everything. You know everything about me. In other words, you know what I did. You know what I felt. You know who I am. You know everything. I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. What's amazing about that is that Jesus is saying to him, lead my church. Go out on the mission that I established for you. Even though you failed, even though you bombed, even though you totally lost it, I want you to be the leader of my church. Go, feed my sheep. Restoration, reconciliation is the final is the final uh, part of this cycle. Um, why is, this, why is this dramatic story in the Scripture? Why is this whole dramatic story in the Scripture? This is not the kind of story, if you are a first century Christian, and you want to go out and convert people to be followers of Christ, you don't start off by saying, you should join our sect of religion. All of us are cowards and doubters. We all ran from our Savior when push came to shove, you know, we bailed. 
that's not, the, we're, in a, we're in a culture at the first century in Israel, we're in a culture of honor. We're in a culture where the belief is you win God's favor by observing the rules with extreme detail. That's the culture. The culture, the right way to write, if you're the propaganda, minister of propaganda for the disciples, you need to say, and the Roman soldiers came in and the disciples stood strong and they would not bow down and they would not run. You know, they stood there valiantly and they were all, you know, I don't know. I don't know what happens, but, but that's not what happened. What happened was they all ran and Peter being the leader of the disciples is 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 fo- his failure is focused upon in this passage that this is we won't get into it but there's this sort of principle of embarrassment where in a literary genre if there's a if there's a if there's a passage that would be embarrassing to the writer then it's more likely to be true than a passage that is you know glorifying to the writer so you don't include details that are bad for your story <laughs> and so um they include this, and I think they include it. And remember, Peter also was the leader of the, the early Christian movement. So without his stamp of approval, this story would not have appeared. Okay? Um, in fact, there's a, there are a lot of scholars that believe, and we talked about this at the very beginning, that this story, the Gospel of Mark, is written down by Mark based upon the eyewitness testimony of Peter. Because Peter shows up in every verse, in every chapter, in every instance in this, in this book. Um, but more importantly, God wants to show us through the life of Peter that we are not going to be able to win his favor and win his love by being perfect. It's not going to work because it's not reality. It's not who we are, and it's not the way the gospel is set up. He wants us to know that we can, after failure, continue forward in the mission that he called us to. All right? And not only... Not only despite failure, and here's where it gets really interesting. It's not just despite failure. It's that the, the failures themselves become the seeds of the mission to which you are called. So your failure becomes part of your calling. Do you understand what I'm saying? So where you stumble, that actually becomes part of the source of what you're called to do. Does that make sense? What do we do when we fail? And I'm going to just go through this quickly. Number one, accept responsibility. Have you ever heard a fake apology? There's nothing worse than a fake apology. You know, we talked last week about the, the prosecutor who had hid exculpatory evidence back in the 80s. And this guy, Michael Morton, was um, put in jail for 25 years wrongly. Um, under the allegation that he killed his wife. And then 25 years later, DNA proves that not only he didn't do it, but another guy did it. And by not getting this other guy, that guy went on and murdered somebody else. So um, the Innocence Project got, got him out, got Michael Morton out um, last year. And there was a prosecutor in the case. And if you remember, the prosecutor hid exculpatory evidence. There, were, there, were some, there was an interview with the, the man's son, little boy, who had been at the scene of the crime um, that was exculpatory and would have helped to exonerate uh, Michael Morton, but the prosecutor didn't let the judge see it. He was under a court order to, to relinquish any exculpatory evidence, and he didn't do it. He kept it hidden, okay? This is very bad. It's a very bad, bad thing to do, and the guy is under investigation right now. But here's his apology. Here's a word-for-word transcript of his apology. If you're Michael Morton's family and you know that your dad was wrongly 
wrongly convicted of killing your mom and you've believed that your dad was a murderer all your life and he's been in prison all, all, your, all your life and then this is the apology. See how well this rings for you. Here was the, here's exactly what the prosecutor said in his 2011 press conference. I want to formally apologize. That's good. So far so good, right? I want to formally apologize for the system's failure to Mr. Morton. Oh, you want to apologize for the system's failure, right? How about your failure? How about apologizing for keeping the exculpatory evidence out of the eyes of the judge and the jury and letting my dad rot in prison for 25 years? How about that apology? You know, when, when we hear people apologize and give that fake apology, it just immediately hits us the wrong way. Here are a few, and I'm sure you've heard these. I'm sorry that your feelings were hurt. <laughs> You're like, oh, really? You're sorry that my feelings were hurt. Um, another one I love is, I'm sorry you feel that way. That's not an apology. That's not taking responsibility for what you've done. That's basically just saying, eh, too bad. Um, and then my favorite one is, I'm sorry, but dot, 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 right? That means, I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry because I'm completely justified in what I did, right? Um, the best way, the absolutely best number one way to ensure that you will fail again in the exact same way is to not take responsibility for your failure. When you divert, when you justify, when you blame something else, you are absolutely 100% guaranteeing that you will fail in the precise same way again. Because you can't learn if you don't take responsibility. Okay. Peter broke down and sobbed. Why? Because he knew that it was him. It was all on him. And when he came to Jesus, he didn't justify. He didn't say, yeah, but I was, you know, it was really. No, he just broke down and said, I'm sorry. It was me. Number two, accept forgiveness. Do not languish in your failure. Have you ever met someone who turned an instant of failure into an identity of failure? Have you ever met someone like that where they fail, right? They fail. That's an event. It's within a, it's within a time frame. But they turn that failure, they turn that moment into their identity. I lied, I must be a liar. I cheated, I must be a cheater. I robbed, I must be a robber. You know? I, I, I'm, you, you, don't, um, you don't have to turn that failure into your identity. All right? Um, I love this passage in 1 John 1, 7 through 9. 1 John 1, 7 through 9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, okay? If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Um, Tim Keller has a great insight about this passage. Why does it say if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us? Why does it say just? Because if you have, if I'm in a courtroom and I'm a criminal defense lawyer and my client did it, he's guilty and he admits he's guilty and he confesses that he's guilty and he comes before the judge and he says, judge, I'm guilty, right? I did the act that I'm, that I'm alleged to have done, right? I don't, at that point, if I'm his lawyer, I don't want justice. I want mercy. I want mercy for my client, right? Because justice would be, you did it, Okay, you did the crime, you served the time. I'm the defense lawyer. I don't want him to serve the time, so I want mercy, right? So why doesn't this scripture say if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and merciful to forgive us. And here's why. Because as we talked about last week, Jesus has already paid the price. He's already served the sentence. It would be patently unjust to convict you of a sin that has already been paid for. So that's why the scripture says he is faithful and just to forgive us because justice is only served by freeing you because your sin has been paid for. All right? That's just a little side note. Okay. Um, John Bunyan, and we're going to wrap it up with this. John Bunyan, the 17th century Christian writer and preacher who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, he also wrote um, an autobiography. And I'm going to read just a little portion of this. And this is kind of a, this is one of those concepts that when you really get it, it just blows your mind. Uh, Bunyan says, one day I was passing into the field. He was walking through a field. And he says, this sentence fell upon my soul. And here's the sentence. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And with the eyes of my soul, I saw Jesus at the Father's right hand. There, I said, is my righteousness. Jesus is my righteousness. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say to me, where is your righteousness? For it is always right before him. Jesus is right before him. The righteousness, my righteousness is not, okay, I'll I'll keep reading the quote. I saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness is Christ. He didn't come to redeem us from our sins. He came to be, he came to become our sins. He took on our sins. Now my chains fell off indeed, Bunyan writes. My temptations fled away, and I lived sweetly at peace with God. Now I could look from myself to him and could reckon that all my character, my character, my integrity, my righteousness, was like the coins that a rich man carries in his pocket when all his gold is safe in a trunk at home. Oh, I saw that my gold was indeed in a trunk at home. In Christ my Lord, now Christ was all my righteousness, sanctification, redemption. Basically what he's saying is, my righteousness is like the pennies that's in the rich man's pocket when really his wealth is in a, in a, in a vault, in a bank. So my righteousness here is not my character. It's the character of Christ who is standing in front of God with having paid for my sins. Does that make sense? So accept forgiveness is what the point is. Accept forgiveness, okay? Don't languish in unforgiveness when Christ has forgiven you. And finally, number three, uh, try again. Um, my, my buddy Patrick, who owns Meshuga Coffee Shop across the street, um, I saw him this week. I went in there and I go, hey, how's, how's your week been? And he goes, there's been a lot of opportunities this week. And I'm like, what does that mean? And he's like, a lot of opportunities. We've had a lot of opportunities this week. And I finally got what he was saying. He's like, this has been a, a really hard week. We've screwed up a lot. It's been a lot of opportunities to learn, a lot of opportunities to get better. Um, so, you know, when you have failed, you've got to start again. You just have to start again. Um, Thomas Edison says, I have not failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Uh, Winston Churchill says success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. Here's the point that Jesus is making. Your failure soaked in the grace of God is the keystone of your mission. Your failure, Peter's denial of Jesus becomes 
soaked in God's grace, becomes the linchpin of his mission because he becomes a man that will absolutely not deny Christ. In the face of death, he will not, defi- he will not deny Christ. Um, the important part is that when you, are, when you come to Jesus, when you've soaked your failure in his grace, there's no plan B for your life. It's not like you can get off track and then you just have to take a, you know, all right, well, this isn't what I, this isn't a good route. This isn't as good as it was. And I used to think that. I used to think if you get out of the will of God and suddenly you're going to do on some sort of tangential path. No, he says you fail, soak the failure in my grace. I'm putting you on plan A. All right, I'm using your failure for good. Um, the next time we see Peter, and I'm wrapping up with this, next time we see Peter is in the book of Acts, chapter 2. He's standing up in front of thousands of people and he's preaching emphatically the gospel 3,000 people convert and become followers of Christ at this sermon so it's it's one one moment he's afraid to admit that he's a follower of Christ in front of a little servant girl in the you know in the dark of night by a fire the next time we see him he's standing on a rooftop proclaiming who Jesus is, and thousands of people come to follow Jesus. Peter becomes the leader of the first century Christian movement. He writes two epistles. He found, he, he's, he's one of the founders of the Church of Rome, along with Apostle Paul. And he's said to have been crucified under Nero, the cross being turned upside down, because Peter didn't feel that he was worthy to die in the same way as his Savior. Clement of Rome, early church father who wrote in 85 AD, says, let us take the noble examples, the noble examples of our own generation. Peter, through unjust envy, endured not one or two, but many labors. And at last, having delivered his testimony, his testimony, he departed into the place of glory due to him. Despite Peter's colossal failure, and in fact, maybe because of his colossal failure, he became the man that God called him to be. He went from being a fisherman, day laborer, fisherman, small fishing, you know, small fishing business on the Sea of Galilee to become a spiritual, cultural, historical revolutionary, changing the face of the planet with his message. What does God have in store for you if you will just plunge your failures into his grace. Amen? Plunge your failures into his grace and see what he's got for you. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. We thank you for, we thank you for the Apostle Peter and the story of his life. We thank you for his failures. We thank you for um, his shortcomings. And we thank you for not obscuring them in the scriptures. We thank you for revealing them in minute detail uh, so that we too can see him as a reflection of of our own life and as a template for our own life god and and knowing that you want to restore and redeem us when we fail father we thank you so much we thank you for this passage today we thank you just for the opportunity to get together we thank you for the others that are here our guests and our friends and and uh, the members of this church and we ask lord that you just be with us this week Uh, Help us to go forward this week to glorify you in everything we do, say, and think, to enjoy you and to enjoy one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.